listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Amen. So if you were able to give to the Baileys going to Africa just a couple of weeks ago, that's a a short video of what happened, one of the things that happened over the course of of three weeks while they were there. So thank you so much to our church for giving so generously and faithfully to provide t-shirts for these kids, to help the Baileys go over there financially, and uh, just to allow us to partner with the Sawyer family there in Maasai Mara. So thank you all so much. Um, We I love what Christ is doing here among us as a body, but also the way that he uses us to impact the world through our resources, through our tools, through our gifting. So thank you. Uh, Who in here loves roller coasters? Show of hands. Okay, more than I thought. When I was a kid, I didn't even like them. Now, I went through like a really short window where I was okay with them, but now I I can't stand them. For for some of y'all, y'all can relate to this. Uh, if you like them, probably the best part is when you're clicking up that first hill. Remember that? So, like, remember the scream machine? Anybody here? I don't know if they still have that or not. I feel like they should have shut it down, like in 1982. I'm not sure. Uh, but if you remember the scream machine, like you're just clicking up, click, 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 and you're going slowly, and you're getting higher and higher, and you can see all of the all of Atlanta, I guess. Uh, I don't know. It's been a long time. So you start going up and your stomach is like, oh man, here comes that first drop. And especially if you're sitting in the back of the roller coaster, you see the first folks go over and then boom, you're gone. Right? And so for some of you, you're like, man, I love that click, 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 click sound. Either way, once you go over the top, it's done. Maybe for some of you, you've, you've clicked all the way up and you're like, boom, the roller coaster is shut down. <laughs> you, you ever been there? You've been stuck at the top? That's happened to me before. The worst feeling. Uh, so here's where we are. The book of Luke, so far we've been click, 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 clicking up. And so from chapter 9, we've seen where Jesus has said, my face is set toward Jerusalem. Here is the reason that I came, to accomplish the mission of the Father. We see one step, another step, boom, I'm doing this, I'm uh, performing miracles, I'm preaching, I'm teaching, I'm overthrowing tables, I'm investing in my disciples, I'm investing in those around me, I'm healing. We have this small thing. going. So when we finish chapter 21, what we did last week, and we go into chapter 22, everything from here until Christ is ascended at the very end of Luke is just flying downhill. So what what we're going to look at today, man, there's so much here. I wish I could have spent about 10 weeks preaching these 23 verses. They're just so rich and full. It's just moving so quickly. And so we've seen that Christ has been ministering for about three and a half years. He's about 33 and a half years old. He's come, and, and now we see just the last couple of days of life. So we're here on a, we just finished Tuesday and Wednesday, and we're looking here at Thursday, either Wednesday night or Thursday. We're looking at that. And so as we prepare for Christ to be put on the cross to accomplish the work of the Father, that's where we are. So we're looking at the next several days of Christ's life, the last few days before he's crucified, before he's put in the tomb to be raised three days later. So that's where we are. Things are flying. They're moving fast. So we pick up in chapter 23 of Luke, and we see here, uh, sorry, in chapter 22 of Luke, in these first 23 verses, Caleb just read these, so I'm not going to read them again, but we see in these first six verses, we see plotting before the Passover. 
there's this plotting that happens. So if you notice the first two verses, now the feast of unleavened bread, is, uh, it drew near, which is called the Passover. Notice the juxtaposition here between verses one and two. Verse one is a fantastic time for the Israelite people looking back to their time of deliverance from Egypt. This is the holiest of seasons. The triumphal entry of Christ has just happened. Now here's why that's important. We know what's going to happen to Jesus, at least most of us do. We know Christ is about to go to the cross. But during this time, as they would prepare, they would take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and take it to the most religious leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, Sadducees. They would take it and say, can you inspect this lamb for sacrifice? So they would do that five days before. Well, what has Jesus done five days before? He's come in, triumphal entry. He is there. Who's he been questioned by? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the most religious folks, even by the crowd. He's been questioned. And we know that he is a blameless sacrifice. So everything is pointing toward his death. First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 7, it says that he was a perfect spotless lamb. He's the fulfillment of what we see here in verse number 1. So this should be a celebratory time for these folks. But notice in verse number 2. Just the, the difference that we see here, the contrast. Verse number two, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. The most religious people on the holiest of days, instead of gathering with their families, instead of gathering with the people of God, which is what they were supposed to be doing, and reading back over what God had done in the Passover, looking back at Exodus chapter 12, they were plotting how to kill the son of God. In the holiest of seasons, they were plotting how to kill the Messiah. That's just wild to me. Then we keep going, verse number three. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the 12. Now, Judas, so Satan has been planning since the very beginning. We see it in Genesis chapter three. We've already seen it here in Luke in, in chapter four when Christ is in the desert. What is Satan trying to do? Thwart the plan of God for the salvation of the people of God through Jesus Christ. So here Satan's like, man, let me, let me just try this. Before Jesus goes, he knows what's going on. He's listened to Jesus. He knows the Old Testament. He knows what he is about to fulfill. Let me just try this one last thing. So let me use Judas Iscariot. Verse number four. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers, Judas did, how he might betray him, Jesus, to them. That word betray is interesting because betrayal, if I'm skeptical of you, you can't betray me, right? If, if I suspect you, you can't betray me. I'm like, oh, you, you can turn your back on me. Well, I, I expected it. Yeah, that's just who you are. In, in order for you to betray me, it requires that I have the highest virtues of love, grace, mercy, compassion, endurance for you. That betrayal is, man, that's such a, that's a huge surprise. Man, that's the bottom of the barrel relationally. You have betrayed my love and my trust for you. So consider the relationship that Jesus has toward Judas here. In order for Jesus to be betrayed, he had to have had the utmost love for Judas. And Jesus still knew what his mission was. Jesus still knew what was going to happen. And in the midst of knowing Judas's heart, Jesus still loved him. That's incredible. 
So we just think, man, Judas, yeah, we've been expecting it. We think that he looks like this every time the, the disciples gather somewhere. And maybe he did. And maybe the other disciples had nuclear halos around their head. I don't know. But understand the relationship that Jesus has to Judas. It's one of love. He gives himself, even for three and a half years. Consider Christ's heart to you. So we're like, yeah, I'm no Judas. You are fully known in your sin. And you are fully loved by Christ. You, friend, this morning, just like Judas, are fully known in your sin by Christ. And you are fully loved in spite of your sin by Christ. Now, how should we treat those around us? Because we're certainly not Jesus, and they're certainly not Judas. But how does the relationship that we have with the Son of God impact the relationship that we have with others? Are we skeptical, or are we giving of ourselves? Are we even able to be betrayed? Because Jesus was, and he's perfect, and he had done nothing wrong. So we see that Judas betrayed Jesus, verse number five, and they were glad and agreed to give him the money. So if we, if we saw before, if you look at the very end of verse number two, the chief priests and the scribes, they feared the people, so they were looking for an end. An end, they were trying to find someone to secretly um, figure out a way to assassinate Jesus. Well, they found it. Judas Iscariot. So now they're thrilled. Verse number six, so they consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. And we know that the hit price for Jesus was 30 pieces of silver. A decent price, but not so much for the Son of God. So we see here as this feast of the unleavened bread, as it's beginning, there's this plot. But secondly, not only we see the plot before the Passover, but we see preparation for the Passover. So we pick up in verse number seven, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So being good Jews, they were planning on eating the Passover. Verse nine, they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now this may seem, it's like, how did Jesus know about this? Here's my guess. We don't, we don't see it from the, from the text, but we can imagine, we can uh, think that Christ's plan and the plan of the father was for him to be sacrificed during the Passover. And so I'm guessing that this was all planned beforehand by Jesus with these folks, with these families, with these men, so that Judas could not betray him beforehand. So Jesus, Jesus understands what has to happen, and he sets this up beforehand. He goes, and if you look at verse number 12, and he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now the Passover had lamb, uh, it had some bitter herbs, but we see here uh, in the middle of the table, and they were all sitting around, we talked about this a few weeks ago, like a U-shaped table, and they weren't sitting, they were actually laying down. And probably what happened was as the, as the, as the U was shaped from, from greatest to least, Jesus wasn't really worried about that. And if you look at some of the other gospel accounts, we can kind of guess where folks were sitting because in a minute we see that Jesus dips the, the bread in and he says, the person who grabbed the bread with me is the one who's going to betray me. So Jesus was probably sitting beside Judas because if he was sitting on the other side of the table, that'd make it really difficult. And then on Jesus' other side, we know that there was John. 
But we also know from, I think it's uh, Mark's account, that John and Peter are kind of making hand signals to each other. Like, who's he talking about? So I'd imagine that Peter is sitting on on the other side of the table. But you have Jesus there on one side of the table with John, the one he loved the most, sitting beside him. And Judas, the one who is going to betray him, sitting on the other. But in front of them would have been four glasses of wine. And by the way, during uh, the next 30 minutes, I may use wine. I may use juice. We use juice here at South Point. Uh, some places use wine. That's fantastic. Uh, and so I'm going to use those interchangeably just because that's what we do. Either way, we understand that it's the fruit of the vine. But then we have, they had here uh, some unleavened bread. Now, we have bread that's leavened, but we're getting real close. As close as we can. We don't have Oreos and milk. But we have bread uh, and that we can afford. Making unleavened bread is, uh, or buying unleavened bread is actually kind of expensive. So we have bread and juice here every single Sunday morning. But they would have had wine and unleavened bread there on the table, among a few other things. So he says, prepare that for me. Here's what I want you to notice, looking back at verse number 10. There's not a ton happening here. They're just going to eat the Passover. But notice what we saw. There was a man carrying a jar of water. Now, in this day and time, that was on a man's responsibility. You would never see a man carrying a jar of water. In fact, the city was packed. Hundreds of thousands of people would come to Jerusalem during this time. And so a man carrying a jar of water on his shoulder, on his head, would have really stood out, stood out like a sore thumb. But here's what historians would say, is this man was actually an Essene. Everybody say Essene. Now, an Essene is one who was committed to uh, John the Baptist's teachings. What was John the Baptist's message to the world? Prepare the way. Prepare the way for the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. We see here a man who was possibly, probably an Essene. And what's he doing? Preparing the way of the Lord. Now, this man, we don't even know his name. He just goes by. But can I encourage you this morning, church? Is this man was used for the sake of the kingdom of God to accomplish his purposes. And so I know many of us, I want to be used in a big way, mainly so that I can feel better about myself. But no matter how you are used for the kingdom of God, even carrying a jug of water, it is necessary. God doesn't ask you to do something huge or impactful or meaningful or that you can put your picture on a sign and say, look at what he did. He calls you to be obedient. This man was obedient here. So we see the preparation for Passover. Then if we keep going, we see the third part of this this chapter in verse number 14. We see... We see participation in the Passover. And this is, this is where we're going to transition into, okay, here's what they were doing, and here's what we do together as a church. Here's why and how we do this. But notice here in verse number 15, notice what Jesus says. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the disciples with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. This term, earnestly desired, It's an intense longing. We often think about Jesus as being mostly emotionless. Disciples, I earnestly desired to do this with you. Now let's move on. Because that's how we read the scriptures most of the time. But Jesus is saying here, if we understand this Hebrew idiom-like term, he's not saying, I just earnestly desired you. Hello, wife, I love you. Hello, kids, you are my kids. It is your birthday. No, he's saying, I earnestly desired this for you. I've, I love you. I prize you. You are mine. I love you so much. This meal is so important. And we, we see the components of this. But here's what he said. So, so big picture, he says, take this bread and break it 
It's a symbol of my body that's broken for you. Take the cup and drink it. It's a sign of my blood, of the new covenant, my blood that is shed for you. Then this passage finishes by talking about Judas, who begins to take a piece of bread with Jesus. Everybody's like, oh, wait, who's going to be the one? We're actually going to kind of pick up on that next week and look at the comparison and contrast between Judas and Peter, see how they responded to Christ. But I want us to look right here in the middle of this section. What does he mean in verse number 19? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. So the first thing that we see there, he says, remember, remember. I have a few things on remember. Communion, first of all, is a regular reminder of all that God has done for us in Christ. It's a regular reminder for us of all that God has done for us in Christ. Now, perhaps you would say that God simply saying, hey, hey, people of God, I love you, and that's enough. Well, that's good. That's really good. But in addition to that, God provides a physical reminder in the bread and juice. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. We have these physical reminders. If we go back to Noah, what did God put in the sky? This, is, this one's pretty easy. What did, God, what did God put in the sky after Noah's ark landed? He put in the sky a rainbow. For who to remember his promise? For him to remember his promise. God says, I'm going to put this rainbow in the sky as a reminder for me. I'm going to remember the promise that I made to you. Now, is God going to forget that promise? No. But he puts it here for us to say, Father, remember? Remember what you told me? I'm going to claim that promise. Remember that you said these things to me. In the Old Testament, we see altars. We see the tabernacle. We have these pillars of fire. Imagery all throughout the Old Testament. Reminders. That's what we sing. Uh, Come thou fount. Here I raise my Ebenezer. A reminder, a stone, a pillar. Remember what God has done, what he's promised. If I, uh, Chris, if I promised to give you $1,000 on your next birthday, when's your birthday? November 22nd. November 22nd. All right. So if I say, Chris, by the way, church, this is hypothetical, okay? I'm putting this out here as a disclaimer for all those who are witnesses here today. Um, but if I said, I'm going to give you $1,000 on your next birthday, and how old are you going to be? I'm just kidding. You don't have to say that. So if I say, Chris... I'm going to give you $1,000 on your next birthday. When November 22nd rolls around, Chris isn't going to say, remember your promise to give me $1,000 on my birthday. He, remember your promise. And I'm going to say, I remember the day I made that promise. It was sunny outside. I was wearing blue jeans. We just got through singing a great rendition of give us clean hands. I do remember, Chris. You're like, no, no. Remember means to act on what you have promised. It's not just a mental recall. Yeah, I remember I, gave, I told you I'd give you $1,000. He's saying, no, show me the money. Give me that $1,000. He's saying, act on that. Act in line with the promise that you have made. Fulfill your covenant, your commitment to me. So we remember and we call upon Christ to act. Secondly, remembering is not simply an act of looking back, but it's something that happens in the present. It's an act of covenant fulfillment or renewal. Literally, as we partake of this communion, the, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, of the Lord's table, whatever you want to call it, 
we are claiming the sacrifice of Christ as our own. And it strengthens our faith because we are reassured of forgiveness and of pardon and of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's not simply an act of looking back, but we are claiming that today in the present. Thirdly, when we partake of communion, we are reminded of the covenant to which we have been called and to which we have committed. So as we take the bread, and for us here at South Point, we dip it in the juice, we're saying, yeah, I'm signing my name to the bottom of this covenant, to the bottom of this oath, the one that has been written, and I'm signing my name yet again. The Lord suffers for those who have been baptized, who have said, I want to be part of the body of Christ. I want to step into that covenant. Here's my public physical declaration of being baptized into the body of Christ. As we partake in communion, we're saying yet again, yes, here is what I've committed to. I've committed to call out sin in someone else's life. I've committed myself to humility when I'm in sin. I've committed myself to giving of my time, of my money, of my resources, of my talents, of my gifts. I've committed myself to showing up and being part of the body of Christ. I've committed myself to serving those who are the least, who are the poor, who are the needy. I've committed myself to evangelizing the lost around me. It's a reminder of Christ's covenant and the way that we have signed that. Look back at verse number 18 with me. Here's something that I think is often overlooked. Notice what Jesus says, and this will lead us into this fourth point, but verse 18, he says, Jesus says, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Some would say that Jesus actually does not partake of the last supper here. He says, I'm not going to do this. Y'all can do this. Some would say, and it's really difficult to tell from the Greek, he did it here. And I actually think he partook of the last supper. And then he said, I'm not going to do this again until my kingdom comes in all of its fullness. He says, you do this, you remember what I have done, but I'm going to go up into heaven eventually. I'm going to let you do this, but I am going to participate when you are all home with me. Here's why that's important. We see here Jesus abstaining until we see him face to face. Because the fourth part of remembering is this, Jesus wants to celebrate with his people in the fullest at the table in his kingdom. He wants to celebrate with his people in the fullest. It's like saying, inviting someone over to dinner and they call uh, a few minutes before and they're like, hey man, we're stuck in traffic. We're gonna be running late. We've got, we got this delay. You don't say, man, I said six o'clock. It really stinks for you. We're gonna be dishing out food at six o'clock. Then they show up 10 minutes late and you're like, hey, do y'all mind doing the dishes? And then you can, you know, partake in some, what do you, you wait for those folks. You wait for them because you love them, because you want to be with them, because they are your friends, because you esteem them so much. You earnestly desire them. Jesus says, I'm going to wait for you. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to catch up with me where I'm going to be in the kingdom. He esteems us so much that he will not celebrate this again until we as his people have finished our course and we've made it home with him. That's really good news for us this morning, church. He remembers that promise to us. Lastly, this word remember, the new covenant inaugurated, is inaugurated by Christ's blood. It will be consummated through all of eternity. So Christ says here, uh, where does he say it? Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, so they had four cups. By the way, this, this third cup after they had eaten 
is actually called the cup of blessing. He said, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. He says the new covenant is going to be inaugurated. It's going to be started with my death, with my sacrifice, but it's not going to be finished until I come again. So Jesus made this covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I want to what? Bless you as my people. You are going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. But then it doesn't really work because human nature, because sin gets involved and we thwart that covenant. So Jesus then has to come, he has to step in and say, I wanna make a new covenant. But friends, this new covenant cannot be thwarted by sin because it's going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God when we have perfect bodies, when we have a perfect nature. So as we partake in communion, we look back at the Passover, which is that first cup of deliverance. We look back at how we have been delivered from sin. We get to look back at Christ and say, we've been delivered from sin's power, from his presence, from his penalty, because of his blood that was shed on the cross, because of his body that was broken for us. We get to look around at each other and say, man, we are being renewed. Christ is making all things new. And this is a reminder of that grace that we have. But we also get to look forward and say, one day we get to sit at the table with a king. And we all get to eat with him together in perfected bodies where the new covenant is then consummated. This, friends, and we do this every single week, it's a foretaste. In other words, a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of heaven. We look back and we look forward. Our future is a meal in resurrected physical bodies in the presence of Christ. As we partake, we remember that. We remember the past. We remember the promise of the future. So, okay, what about for us today? So we, we get this word remember. It's got this looking back. It's got this looking forward. But here's what else he says at the very beginning of that line in verse number 19. He says, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. This phrase, do this, is important to us. So how do we do this? What does this mean? How do we participate in this? And this goes under the participation. What does this mean for us? And that word participation actually comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 16. Paul says, he uses that word koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. That was decent. And so as he talks about there, he's talking through what it means to participate in communion. That word koinonia is where we get our word for communion. It means participation or it means fellowship. He says, this is what we are doing together when we gather. Again, we're doing it what? Together. That means it is a relational act. So he says, as you do this, it's not just you and Jesus. It's you with the body of Christ, brothers and sisters around us. It is you with the Trinity, with Jesus. It's also you with saints who have passed, who have gone before. He says, remember the history of where you are. Remember your future. So how do we do this? And I have five points for this as well. First, we, we must approach the physical nature of communion with gravity and engage the spiritual reality with gratitude. So as we come up, I don't mean we just like slowly, we don't worship the elements here. And oh, let me, But we need to approach the table, this bread and this juice 
with gravity. This means something because Jesus said, do this. There's an action involved. But there's also a spiritual reality that sometimes we can pass over. So there are four primary views of communion. I'll start over here so this makes sense to you, not just to me. But uh, from left to right. So first is the Catholic view of communion. Catholics would say this, that every single time that communion is offered, Jesus Christ is sacrificed again. So this morning, this week, every time they have mass and they participate in communion, anytime any church does, that Jesus Christ is being sacrificed again. The author of Hebrews, the apostle Paul, Peter, Christ himself would argue with that view. He suffered once for mankind. His sacrifice is done. They would also say that the bread becomes the literal body of Jesus Christ in your mouth. The blood literally becomes the blood of Jesus in your mouth. And we don't see that anywhere in scripture. So that's the first argument. And that is probably good enough to be the last argument as well. So we don't see that anywhere in scripture. They'd also say, it doesn't matter how you come to the table with faith or without faith. As long as you do this, whew, you're good for that week. No. Second view, Luther, he would say, let me, let me bring it this way a little bit. You need to approach the table with faith. You must have faith. And I would say yes and amen. The difficulty with Luther, again, he comes out of this system. And so it's, it's, it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, he's messed up. He's, everybody's wrong except for what I believe. Well, well thanks, man. Um, we, we've had lots of really good history. And Luther did a great job of starting the Protestant Reformation. But what he would say is that the, the bread and the, and the wine don't become the body and the blood of Jesus, but the physical body of Jesus is right there kind of underneath them. And so Catholics, that was called consubstantiation. So con, with the substance of Jesus, it becomes with that. Transubstantiation, uh, sorry, Catholics is transubstantiation. It becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. Luther was consubstantiation. So the bread and the juice, the bread and the wine are right there with the presence of Jesus. The difficulty is that we know that the presence of Jesus, the physical body is right now beside the father in heaven. He's seated there. So we would have some arguments with Luther. I'm gonna skip my man, John Calvin, and I'm going to go over here to uh, Ulrich Zwingli. And what he would say is when Jesus says, remember, he simply means it's happening in the mind. So there's not a whole lot of, there's nothing spiritual that's happening. And so if you understand Zwingli, he's trying to say, man, the pendulum was way over here. I'm going to swing it way over here. And I like Zwingli on a lot of stuff, especially missions. But I think he's wrong in this because Jesus is saying, no, lo, I am with you always. Do this in remembrance of me. What does it mean to remember? It doesn't mean just, to, oh yeah, I have that memory. No, we're enacting a promise. You're saying, fulfill this covenant. I'm signing my name to that. So Zwingli's over here. I would lean with John Calvin, where there's a, a, a nice balance there of the physical presence of Jesus can remain in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. But Calvin said that the spiritual presence of Jesus is among his people. The spiritual presence of Jesus is among his people. So we have the essence of remembering. I am there with you as a reminder to you. I'm able to span the transcendent and the imminent through the power of the Holy Spirit and make these things true in a very real sense in your life yet again this morning. So we enter, we approach the physical nature of communion with gravity, and we engage the spiritual reality with gratitude, with thankfulness. The second truth when he says do this, 
Jesus wants you to taste and see that he is good. Now, again, we're not saying tangibly, mm, body of Jesus, mm, a little salt. No, he, he's saying taste and see spiritually that I am good. This is the grace of God embedded, embodied in a meal. Embodied in a meal. Jesus doesn't say this. He doesn't say, um, say this in remembrance of me. Nobody's translation says that, hopefully. Your translation doesn't say, think this in remembrance of me. He says, do this, enter into this. There's a special physical nature that has to happen in communion. Because of our enlightened minds, thanks to philosophers like Rene Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am, right? Sometimes we enter into a spiritual relationship with God the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. And we say, I understand, therefore I am. I can read, therefore I am. And there's a separation between our minds. Really, there's a separation between our souls and the rest of reality, the rest of what's happening around us. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, take all of you and be reminded of what I have done with all of myself. When you look at a picture album, you don't just look at, a, look at an old picture. You just, I don't just see a picture of, of me and Shannon from almost 15 years ago and say, oh, wow, yeah, that day was kind of cloudy. Um, yeah, I was uh, a good 20 pounds lighter. Uh, yeah, we were on the beach. Here are the memories that I have. I remember that day. No, I remember the way that I felt. I remember, and in your, in your brain, physiologically, your, your memory your long-term memory is located right beside of your deepest emotions. So every memory that you have is locked in with your emotions. I remember the emotions. I remember what was happening in my heart, in my soul that day, on my wedding day. You can look at almost any picture that you have. Like, I remember that. I remember my dad getting mad at me that day, and then he said, okay, everybody smile for a family picture. I remember that. We, we remember what's happening on the inside of us. And the same is true here when it comes to communion. It should touch our hearts. This is the grace of God embodied in a meal. Thirdly, the bread and the juice, they only work as we respond to them in faith. So friends, we've talked about this, but these are not the objects of our faith. They signify the object of our faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't become Christ. Christ isn't somewhere hidden under the table. They signify, they point us to the presence of Jesus Christ. Think about how this works in marriage. I can tell my wife, you can, you can tell your spouse, you can say, I love you. You can say it over and over and over. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And that's really good. That's a significant expression of, of what's happening on the inside of you. But nobody's gonna say, I love you, and now let me hug and kiss you, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> let, me, let me hug and kiss you. Like, whoa, whoa, but you said you love me. That's sufficient. We don't have to do anything else. You're also not gonna say, whoa, whoa, for us to be physical, that's redundant of you saying I love you. Just pick one or the other. We're okay with both of those things. It's a full expression of who we are, both verbally. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember, I love you, and now I want to hug and kiss you. Both of those things are at work. We respond to these things in faith. Remember the prodigal son we saw back in Luke chapter 15? What does the father say when the prodigal, when he sees the, the son coming at a distance? When the father runs up to him, what does he say to him? Yeah, that's right. 
he embraces him and he kisses him. He doesn't say anything to him at first, right? Good job, y'all. You didn't know you were going to get an A on this part of the test. <laughs> he embraces him as a physical, tangible representation of acceptance and forgiveness, of saying, man, welcome back into the family. You are here. You're with me. So we respond to these things in faith. Fourthly, we see a distinction between union and communion. Now, union is a one-way relationship between us and God the Father. That's his grace to us. We have union with God because he has enacted on our behalf. But communion is a two-way relationship. It's a two-way street. It's how we respond to him in faith. And so I would plead with you this morning, friend, when you are weary, when you're guilt-ridden, when you are doubting, when you're frustrated, when you're anxious, when you're proud, however you're coming in this morning, whether you're incredibly down or incredibly up because of something that you've done or you think that you should have done, however you come in this morning, come to the bread and wine. Come to the bread and to the juice. We receive these as a sign of our union with Christ. When we communion with Christ, when we step into communion, we experience afresh the fruit of our union with him. And in this way, he nourishes our souls. So wherever your soul is this morning, as you partake of this, your soul is refreshed because of your union with Christ. Now, this bread that we have in these bowls, this juice, is gonna provide very minimal nourishment for you. There are very few vitamins, if any, in these. There's, there's very few substance to these things at all. But as we respond to communion and faith, we don't just see this as physical food, which provides a few calories, but we see this as spiritual food, which nourishes our souls because we remember, we claim the promises of Christ. Lastly, as we do this week in and week out, communion is the reaffirmation of Christ's covenant love. Communion is the reaffirmation of Christ's covenant love. And I would plead with you, there, there's a reason we do this physically, tangibly. When you eat with someone, and you can look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 20, I believe, what does Jesus say? He says, those who call on me, I will come and I will what? Teach you? No. I'll come and throw football with you. I'll come and hang out. I'll come and be near you. No, I'll come and eat with you. There are very few more things that you can do with greater intimacy than eat. He says, call on me and I will come and dine with you. So come and experience a satisfaction of your deepest longings. Not because of bread and juice, but because of Christ's broken body and his shed blood for you. Maybe you're in the throes of sin, of abandonment, of doubt, of loneliness or despair, depression, anxiety. Wherever you are in the throes of that, you are, I am, constantly seeking fulfillment and satisfaction. We're looking for those things. And we know in our mind, we know up here that Christ is enough. And that's true. We know that Christ is enough and that is true. But what does that look like? What does that feel like? Where's the holding of hands? 
Where's the physical embodiment? Where's the touch? How do you find that satisfaction in Christ? Because you already know it. I can say over and over, Christ is enough, Christ is enough, Christ is enough, Christ is enough, Christ is enough. But how? But how? When you're in the throes of temptation, how can you taste the fact that Christ is enough? What does that taste like? Beloved, it tastes like bread and wine. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Be reminded at the core of your being of who I am, what I've done for you. Remember. So in the context of faith and community, we hear the preached word of God. We hear the prayers of the saints. We hear each other singing. And we're able to partake together in the bread and in the juice with our mouths but we get to be nourished to the very depths of our soul. So friends, this morning, I want us to receive these gospel promises. We can hear the gospel promises, but physically, tangibly, and ultimately spiritually, we get to receive the promises of Christ in communion. We can think of this as a lover's touch. You're like, that's kind of strange, I know, Face to Descartes, I think, therefore I am. But we can think of communion as a lover's touch. We can, there is nothing more in this world that we will get closer to feeling Christ holding our hand than communion. This is about as close as we can get to intimacy with Jesus Christ. Communion is his embrace of us. And on the cross, Jesus took the cup of wrath and it was poured out on him so that a cup of blessing could be filled up and we could partake of that. We could drink of that. That cup of blessing is filled with Christ's merits on our behalf. There's great comfort in that. And he wants to wrap his arms around you. He wants you to taste that, to feel that, to be nourished and encouraged by that. Our greatest need is the presence of Jesus. That's our greatest need. And we can celebrate his provision and faithfulness that he satisfies, that he sustains us. So this morning, friends, as you hold the bread, think of it as God's promise, his pledge, his covenant to you. He has inaugurated this work. We can look back and we get to look forward to one day when we are gonna be eating this meal together in his presence. So this meal this morning is for those of us who have faith. This meal is a time for us to remember who we were before Christ, what Christ has done for us, and who we get to live as in Christ. So we get to celebrate. So friends, come and participate in this meal with me with joyful hearts, with repentant hearts.